I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is... To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Tuesday, May 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, has once again seemed to follow an all-too-familiar path of online radicalization and planning, leading to violence. In this case, the shooter acted as a lone wolf, but despite not having a direct collaborator, he had an online pack. The shooter's ideology is shared by others, whether it be those who subscribe to the Great Replacement Theory or creators of the memes that influenced him. Juliette Kayyem, former Assistant Secretary for Homeland Security, joins us for more. Next, when a tragedy like the one in Buffalo happens, questions arise of possible warning signs and why action wasn't taken sooner. In this case, the shooter was reported to police for a possible threat of violence and had a mental health evaluation in 2021. There are also questions about writings and plans he had posted online and how one becomes radicalized. Aaron Gregg, reporter at the Washington Post, joined us for the troublesome trail that led to terror. Finally, it's the dominant model of modern parenting, and it might be time to quit it. Intensive parenting, also known as helicopter parenting, is a model where parents try to overextend themselves in trying to maximize their child's success but research shows that it can lead to parental burnout and harm a child's competence and mental health. Elliot Haspel, early childhood policy expert and contributor to The Atlantic, joins us for how to get away from anxiety-driven intensive parenting. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It is being investigated as the FBI articulated as a hate crime. The, the term uh, domestic terrorism is a legal term and because the investigation is ongoing, uh, I, I, won't, uh, I won't employ that term. Joining us now is Juliette Kayem, a former Assistant Secretary for Homeland Security under President Obama and faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Thanks for joining us, Juliette. Thanks for having me today. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit more about what happened over the weekend in Buffalo yeah. explore, you know, what's going on uh, with the shooter, uh, you know, this uh, crazy ideology that we're hearing a lot about, the great replacement theory, the you know, white replacement theory, people are calling it as well, and explore this kind of idea of a lone wolf who's not really a yeah. lone wolf. A lone you know, wolf, yeah. You know, he, he carried this out on his own, obviously, but we got to look to how he was radicalized online. And there's tons of people that share this same ideology. And you mentioned in your article about this, the online pack that he has. You know, there's two stories here. So one is, of course, the shooter and who he was and what he had tried to do before and why didn't they, you know, why didn't his sort of previous activity, we're learning now that he had threatened to shoot at his school. 
you know, raised any alarms and access to a gun. So those are some very specific issues. They are important. They are important to the victims. I am not dismissing that and that he faces the justice that he deserves. But it's too easy to say he acted alone. He was a solo shooter or he was in the, in the you know, the, the language that we've come to use, the lone wolf. I've been in counterterrorism and homeland security a long time. A lone wolf was just a way that we used to separate it from the sort of more organized attacks, say like a 9-11 type attack or an ISIS attack. And it just seemed to me the language was failing us, given the kind of hatred and racially motivated, violent extremism that we're seeing. And so I started this piece that I had in The Atlantic that I think struck a nerve in some ways. It's sort of If you actually think about lone wolves, they are not dangerous. The, the wolves are a pretty mundane animal. Their success actually comes in the fact that they only uh, that they kill in packs. And that's exactly what this shooter had. And it's not a traditional pack, but it's one that was supporting, aiding, pushing, giving him comfort, making him think he had his people. That's an online phenomenon uh, and one that, you know, led to him videotaping the shooting. And I want to be clear You know, look, there's lots of people who have horrible opinions that I don't agree with. The great replacement theory is fundamentally a theory about violence. You really there's no sort of benign interpretation of it. It is one in which the belief is based on a belief that the pie is limited and that the presence of, in this case, black Americans took the white American, in this case, the shooter, uh, was threatening his place at the table. And so, and this is what he wrote about. This is what he perceived. This is what is amplified by members of the GOP, by top media officials who tease it, but don't really say what they mean. And that is exactly where we are. That replacement is a term of violence. It is, uh, it is, it's either me or you. And in this case, he decided it was going to be him. And, you know, when we look at even the manifesto that the shooter posted online, you know, a lot of many pages of that were memes, you know, so whether he created those or not, you know, I think they were probably coming from a lot of other places. Right. But that's what those people believe enough to make the meme and make fun of what that situation is. And then going beyond that, he's, you know, taking in so much of that, that it starts warping his mind into that. And so that's, uh, you know, obviously right. people have talked a lot about social media and the, and the how that plays a part into all this. And, and it's definitely true. And then to the other point, right, the white replacement theory, the great replacement theory, it's kind of reinforced in subtle ways. And yeah. people don't like to say yeah. it outright, but all of this kind of starts to warp a person's mind. And, and now is the trying to understand how it happened to him. There's a term in terrorism and counterterrorism called stochastic terrorism. It's, it's the use of language to incite random acts of violence. So they're not saying do this on this date against these people. What leaders do is they're sort of coy enough in their language. And I think that's what we see in the political and media space now, that they'll talk of grievance, of displacement, of fighting, all the language, right? What's rightfully mine is being taken away, the scourge of other, of the other. And they don't have to say do something, right? They don't have to say do this on that date. But it creates a totally predictable line to violence. And I think it's really important that we, those people who see it and all of us who are are obviously not on this side, uh, call it for what it is. uh, Because, you know, it has to be shamed. I mean, these people are getting away with this kind of violent extremism. And I'm just absolutely clear about that's what this is. It is not, there's no benign, again, there's no benign theory of why someone is espousing the great replacement 
as a grievance. There's no other way to interpret it. It's not like, oh, okay, that's fine. I and mean, it is literally a call to arms. Juliette Kayyem, former Assistant Secretary for Homeland Security under President Obama and faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That includes paying tribute to the Buffalo police officer, Aaron Salter, Slater, excuse me, who gave his life trying to save others when a gunman shot and killed 10 innocent people in a grocery store in Buffalo on Saturday. He actually was able to shoot the assailant twice, but he had on a, he had on a bulletproof vest. Joining us now is Aaron Gregg, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, let's talk about uh, what happened in Buffalo. Obviously, we had a tragic shooting. Ten people were killed. Three others were injured at uh, the top supermarket there in Buffalo. This was done by an 18-year-old Peyton Gendron. And, you know, we're obviously what happens after the fact is going into, uh, you know, their social medias. He had a manifesto that he had posted online and really finding out kind of what the motivations are. You know, we saw that this was racially motivated according to the writings that he had. But this is uh, a long trail of stuff that he had online. And, you know, obviously the questions come to why did things get missed? He uh, had a psyche evaluation not too uh, last year i think it was and you know you, you try to put the pieces together and uh, unfortunately we have a lot of stuff on him so aaron tell us a, a little bit w- uh, more about what we're learning the shooter is very much a person who was radicalized online he in his own words he was quote bored during covid and started looking at memes on 4chan this is a, basically a site where almost anything goes and you truly get kind of the worst of humanity coming out and posting anything they want and he became very interested in white supremacist and anti-semitic stuff this um rambling manifesto that he posted actually itself was like had pages and pages devoted to just memes as if his his theories were supported by little pictures from the internet. I would say that, you know, this is very much a 21st century story, very much a 2022 story of someone who became very, very racist uh, to the point where he was willing to hurt a lot of people to kind of bring his views into into practice. But what's kind of interesting about this person is that he says he never had any contact with any other white supremacists, any other people who espouse those views. He just looked at stuff on the internet and came to these views himself. 
he cites uh, shooters from New Zealand and from South Carolina as people who kind of inspired him with their own mass shootings and their own racist rants. This is very much an online radicalization that we're seeing here. You know, obviously this happened in Buffalo, New York, but he's from Conklin, uh, you know, upstate New York, 200 miles away or something. So a lot of the investigation is really centered there and, you know, how he got to this point. That's true. I think one of the important open questions is also how he got his equipment. He posted a lot of information basically to the effect that he had he prepared for this for a long time. He had acquired body armor. He had acquired high-capacity magazines, which, although he says they were bought in New York, they were illegal to be sold in New York. He says he bought them at a flea market. He had, you know, apparently he had eye, eye coverings. He had a helmet. And all of this equipment basically allowed him to overcome a security guard. This is the rare moment where there actually was an armed security guard on the premises who apparently opened fire on the shooter. But the security guard was overcome by the fact that the shooter had body armor, a helmet, and an AR-15 with 30-round uh, magazines. Yeah. And so basically because of the gear that he had, it didn't matter that this grocery store had done its job to have security on premises. And, you know, this plan was brewing for some time, right? Uh, according to reporting from some of your other colleagues there at the Post, you know, they said two months before this attack played out, he was there searching, trying to, you know, do recognizance. There was a security guard at the time that said, hey, what are you doing here? And uh, he even mentioned in his notes that were posted then, he said, that was a close call. You know, they could have got me at that moment. So he'd been casing the place. There was plans to carry out other or a continuing attack possibly because he had plans that said you know it's going to take me this long to get from this point to the next point and whatnot so i mean there was so much planning involved in all this that's true and a lot of that planning was made obvious to authorities at different points in this guy's life that's one of the things that is so sad about this story is that Anytime there's a mass shooting, people are upset that, you know, how could it have been prevented? But in this case, you can identify specific junctures where it could have been prevented. He was basically given a psych evaluation in high school when some people asked him, what are, what are your plans post-graduation? And he said, murder-suicide. Now, granted, that was nonspecific. He didn't say, I'm going to go to this specific store and do X, Y, and Z. But it was very clear that this guy was very much a danger to the people around him. And for whatever reason, be it the fault of schools, authorities, you know, I, I don't think we know at this point who exactly is to blame, but it is very clear that this could have been stopped and for whatever reason it was not. I know there's a lot of frustrations going on with, with all this. And, and hopefully we can, as the investigations continue, we'll be able to put some of those, some more of those pieces together. I think a lot of people are going to be asking about who are the people around this man who shaped him in this way or failed to steer him off of this course. I think other people are going to be asking about the equipment. Governor Kathy Hochul was mainly concerned about the high-capacity magazines. New York banned those for this exact reason, but one was apparently bought in New York flea market anyway. I think there are going to be a lot of questions asked about whether the flea market was selling this illegally, whether someone bought it in a different state and then sold it, you know, used and unlabeled at a flea market. It's clear that anyone in this country who wants to buy body armor, wants to buy high-capacity magazines or an assault rifle, they're not that hard to find. And so that's a big part of this as well. Aaron Gregg, reporter at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
now kids are potentially more overparented than they have been in the past. And so my sort of point here is we need to figure out something to replace intensive parenting instead of just telling parents, don't do that. Joining us now is Elliot Haspel. He's an early childhood policy expert and author of Crawling Behind, America's Child Care Crisis and How to Fix It. Thanks for joining us, Elliot. Thanks so much for having me. You wrote an interesting uh, article about intensive parenting. A lot of people might know this a little bit more commonly, you know, helicopter parenting, bulldozer parenting. I think there's a snowplow parenting. You know, everything has its kind of a funny name to it. But basically where, you know, parents are overextending themselves, right? Trying to maximize their child's future success by just being involved in every way possible along the way. And you write about how, you know, this is kind of the dominant method in the country right now. And maybe we should try to move away from that. So tell us a little bit more. The challenge is that intensive parenting doesn't actually get us the goals that we want. It's counterproductive. The idea is we want our kids to be successful in an uncertain world. And so we're going to kind of clench really tight around them. What the evidence shows us, rafts of evidence, almost any way you look at it, is it actually ends up hurting children's mental health, especially when they become adolescents and young adults. And it really stresses parents out. And actually stressed out parents are not generally uh, super effective parents. And so what I'm writing here is saying there's lots of evidence, there's been evidence for years and years and years that intensive parenting can be very counterproductive, but it's not actually causing any changes. Uh, there's a writer, another writer for The Atlantic, Kate Julian, who talks about how actually now kids are potentially more overparented than they have been in the past. And so my sort of point here is we need to figure out something to replace intensive parenting instead of just telling parents, don't do that. If we have research saying, you know, it's not the most beneficial thing, why is it the most dominant kind of uh, form of parenting right now? So what I would consider it maladaptive. What that means is it's logical. You can create a story by which it makes sense, but actually it doesn't work. And so, you know, it appears to be, scholars suggest, a response to this anxiety. And there's lots of reasons behind it. But to sort of distill it, right, the future looks pretty uncertain. As the future looks pretty uncertain for your kids, what you're going to do is try to control everything you can control to give them the best chance of success. And so there's an appeal to it, right? Like, I might not be able to control climate change, and I might not be able to control income inequality, but I, I can do everything in my power to smooth the path that my kid can get to into a, a good college. Now, that's the way the logic goes. Uh, and so it's very seductive in a way, and it's not until you kind of go a few sentences further into the thought that you realize, actually, that's not getting us where we want to go. What are some of these new methods that we can maybe replace this with? Yeah, so my read on uh, the whole sort of parenting and child outcome literature is that we actually need to reject the idea that there's like this system or method that we need to be moving forward on when we think about how to parent. But actually, we can kind of calm down and realize that so long as we're providing reasonable amounts of love and support and care, and obviously there are going to be times when we need to lean in more, times when we need to lean out. But if we, we broadly do what this, uh, this pediatrician and psychologist from the, the 40s and 50s called good enough parenting. That doesn't mean it's mediocre. It doesn't mean it's apathetic. It means there's literally a point at which if you try to continue to optimize, you're going to do more harm than good. And so finding that, that sort of good enough point, it does. It does mean that like we want to think about being a relatively whole, calm, happy person will generally make you a better parent. 
giving the children, you know, a room to fail within reason actually helps them grow their competence. And so my piece is really saying, let's reject, let's not just say no more intensive parenting. Now we're going to do gentle parenting or no more intensive parenting. Now we're going to do the REI parenting. It's not, we can't keep replacing these models with other models. We have to do is reject the fundamental premise that there is a model out there um, and understand what actually drives effective child development is this sort of metaphor of really being more of a gardener, uh, you know, just setting the conditions, reaching that good enough point and not striving for perfection. Yeah. Another way to kind of think about it that you mentioned in the article is thinking of different aspects of it as dials, you know, dials you can ramp up all the way to 10, some that you can leave down to one, non-serious problems for their kids, things that they should learn how to handle themselves, you know, that could be dialed down a little bit lower, give them a little bit of independence and, and, and learn it for themselves. Broadly speaking, I think we can think about like one of these guiding principles of parenting in that will help us make these decisions. Should I sign my kid up for that and then another extracurricular? Do I need to be doing their homework, you know, for them tonight or should I go out with, a, you know, go talk to a friend on the phone tonight? There are these sort of micro level decisions, uh, you know, I think we can get in our head about them. But if we understand that actually not helping your kid with your homework one night is not going to uh, foreclose their future of getting into uh, into college, uh, which I think is sometimes confusing feel like that much pressure, uh, it can help us all start to, start to calm down. Elliot Haspel, early childhood policy expert and author of Crawling Behind, America's Child Care Crisis and How to Fix It. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.